on the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry. I'm delighted to be joined by trichologist Claire Fulham, chatting all things hair loss. I remember then going, I'm losing a bit more hair. Like, I could see hair everywhere. It was all okay. over my desk oh, wow. and work, okay. everywhere. And so I went to my GP. She found five big patches on my scalp, one the size of my fist. So I was like, right, what am I going to do about this? Give me a plan. She just looked me dead in the eye and said, there's nothing you can do. I went on list for dermatologists. She had a cancellation and she very quickly said, yes, you have alopecia areata. As ever available on all podcast platforms. This week on Crime World. There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919, 1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the Indo-Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the Indo-Daily. Why is Irish MEP Claire Daly so divisive? For almost three decades, Claire Daly has pulled no punches on her political pursuits. But in recent years, as an Irish MEP, she's rattled her peers in the chambers of European Parliament. It might suit some people in here to condemn Russian war crimes while ignoring American and Israeli ones. I condemn them all, but unless the law applies equally for all countries, we'll never have an international system of justice for the victims of war crimes. And since the war on Ukraine, Claire Daly and her views have divided people globally. The point that we were making is that this narrative that somehow the war is happening because we're dealing with some crazed maniac in the form of Putin is a distortion of the reality that one of the contributing factors to this situation has been the constant destabilization of that region by NATO and the US. Now, she finds herself on Ukraine's list of people who allegedly promote Russian propaganda. So has she gone too far? Or what does she think herself? I'm Denise Callanan, and today I'm joined by Claire Daly. Claire, you've been added to this list of people who allegedly promote Russian propaganda. It was compiled by the Ukraine Secret Service. Why do you think you were added to this list? Oh, well, sure. Look, you'd have to ask them that. But I suppose the bigger question is, why did they do this list at all? And what is the basis of it? I mean, it would be a bit different if this was a big scientific expose of people who'd been unmasked as being on the Kremlin's payroll or something. But it's not that at all. It's a really disparate group of people who have no political links at all, very different actual political ideologies from the states and Europe in particular, journalists, politicians, and, you know, we are just, our opinions have been labelled as Russian propaganda. And, you know, I find it disappointing, but not surprising. I mean, we've seen increasingly the Zelensky government shutting down on dissent internally, 
uh, shutting down opposition, political parties, jailing media people and all the rest of it. And now we have this international list of people's opinions who are we look through it and actually the only uniting thing really is that all the people on the list would be critical of the US and NATO's position on the war in Ukraine. That's the only uniting factor. And uh, it's utter bizarre. Because you are saying, Claire, that the things that they've, you know, labelled you as saying that you're, you stand by them, that they're true. Oh, yeah. I mean, the two things that I was added to the list for um, was the first one in saying that sanctions will hit ordinary people. And I absolutely stand over that. And sadly, as the war continues and there's no moves for peace, we see that increasingly impacting on uh, ordinary people in Europe uh, with the war now around energy sources, oil and gas. We're going to have a very cold winter. We could see people losing their jobs in their hundreds of thousands right across Europe. So ordinary people are suffering from these sanctions, which have had no impact at all on saving a single Ukrainian life or ending the war. So, yeah, I absolutely stand over that. It's totally true. And the second crime I committed was to say that the war was being fought by the UN and uh, or the US and NATO. It was a proxy war between them and Russia using basically Ukraine as cannon fodder in that. And I truly believe that that's the case. That doesn't mean that Russia isn't responsible for starting it. Of course they are, and we have condemned that. But to ignore the role being played by the US and NATO would be totally naive. And I think particularly as the war has gone on, it's blatantly obvious that they are just keeping it going enough to keep it going to benefit the arms manufacturers. And sadly, now the Ukrainians are losing a, a thousand troops a day. They're being decimated. We have, you know, millions of them displaced around Europe, tens of thousands of them having to seek refuge in Ireland. It's absolutely horrific state of affairs, which the ordinary people of Ukraine are paying the price of. And I think that's appalling. Claire, you haven't been one to mince your words when it comes to this war or the American intervention with the war. But can you understand how your comments could be upsetting to people and maybe possibly even some of those refugees? I can't. I don't know what comments you're talking about. I mean, we have roundly condemned Russia for starting this war. They bear the responsibility for it. But to, as I say, ignore the role of the US and NATO in this would be completely naive. And all that we've said all along is I've never said this is anything other than a reprehensible war. I've been an anti-war activist all of my life. What I have said is that sanctions don't help and that arming, putting arms into a conflict doesn't defend people. It actually prolongs the war, meaning more of them get killed. And I think, sadly, I've been vindicated in that position because we're seeing more arms going in, more sanctions being piled on. And the result of that is more and more Ukrainians dying and being displaced. And that's the last thing that I want to see. So it's, you know, it's been some of our positions have been misspun um, mischievously by some political opponents, but also deliberately, I think, by sections of the establishment media to spin them into something different that, if you like, my opposition to sanctions is somehow that, oh, I'm soft on Russia and I don't want Russia damaged or anything. It's no such thing. I'm opposed to sanctions because they don't work, because they punish ordinary people. I mean, look at the impact of the sanctions. Russia is making more money than it ever did it cannot spend the money because of the sanctions, but it is sitting on billions and billions and billions. 
in part because of the manner in which the European Union has implemented these sanctions. And who's going to pay for that? Not Putin and his oligarchs. The people paying for that are the people in Germany who are going to lose their jobs, probably in their hundreds of thousands. The old people across Europe who are going to be freezing and so on. So, I mean, they're the only points that we've made. Look at, I mean... You know, we've been accused of being Putin puppets and all this, but nobody has ever been able to produce a single word anywhere that shows me supporting Putin. He's a right wing neoliberal nationalist and I have nothing to do with him now or ever. So do you still believe, Claire, that Ukraine shouldn't be a member of the EU or do you think your opinion on that could change? I've never said that. I've absolutely never said that. It's entirely a matter for the people of Ukraine if they would like to join the European Union or not. Uh, What we said was that... This idea of accelerating Ukrainian membership, it's not going to happen. It's a pipe dream. It's a a nonsense. And everybody knows that, in fairness, Macron has been open about that. It's a sort of a a statement to sort of say, oh, you're in our camp. But practically speaking, the, um, I suppose, steps that would have to be taken to make Ukraine a member would take years. And, I mean, we should be careful on this as well, because, I mean, the European Court of Auditors, had an audit on Ukraine in just before Christmas and the billions of euros, because Ukraine has been strongly supported by the EU for years anyway. And the European Court of Auditors' own body said it couldn't account for the billions that have gone in to Ukraine because of the level of corruption in that society and so on, that European taxpayers' money couldn't be accounted for properly there. So there's huge issues of um, corporate scrutiny, transparency, judiciary, you know, media freedoms, all of these issues. So to kind of pretend that they're going to be included, that's all it was, wasn't helpful at that time. So if they want to join, that's entirely up to them. But I'd be hoping that would be on the basis that uh, the demands which were put on other member states of opening up their economies to privatisation and all that wouldn't be put on at them. And we've actually voted for areas where the Ukrainian debt should be written off and so on. But the European Union didn't want that. They want to keep them shackled in that regard. So, I mean, it's it's not up to me if, if people in Ukraine or anywhere want to join that's up to them. But this idea that it happens overnight is a nonsense. It it doesn't happen like that. There's states in the Balkans been waiting for 20 years to join and that has to be factored in as well. So our position on that was we just weren't going to play games on it. Other people said, oh, the Ukraine can join tomorrow. That's, That's a nonsense. Everybody knows that's not the case. So why pretend and play political games when people's lives are at stake? And we're not going to descend to that. Do you think particularly the people who voted for you in the European elections in 2019 agree with you on views on the war in Ukraine? Are you confident that you have the backing here in Ireland for the next election if you were to run? Well, sure, Lucas, I mean, two years is a long time away. And I mean, obviously, you know, I don't know. I certainly know that some people support me and I absolutely know some people don't support me because, I mean, equally. I have been in receipt of a whole load of emails as well with people giving out to me and exactly saying, oh, I voted for you and I don't agree with your position on the war. And this has been quite interesting because some of the people, when I get back to them and say, well, well, what parts can we talk about it? And we discuss out the issue and they will say, oh, I didn't understand that. I didn't know that you did vote to condemn the war. I, I didn't know that that happened. And we had a chat and they said, no, no, I agree where you're coming from. That's fine. Other people have been vitriolic in their... Uh, emails and on quite an emotive level who won't engage in the issues. But I think where I get an exp- uh, a chance to explain what our actual position is, most people would um, understand that, whether they agree with it or not. I think a lot of people would. But even if people don't agree with that, 
Isn't that the benefit of a democratic society? Isn't that what we're supposed to be defending? Which is why the Ukrainian list is a little bit sinister, because the hallmark of a democratic society is having the right to have a difference of opinion. And that's how people learn and develop. I mean, I think it was really heartening to see the letter in the Irish Times from uh, Michael D. Higgins's wife calling for peace. The Pope has called for peace. That's all that I've done throughout all of this is to say stop the war and peace. And I know my views have been represent misrepresented and I'm quite sure that some people who voted for me won't vote for me again. But I've had other people saying to me, you know, I never voted for you before, but you know what? bit of backbone there, a bit of common sense. I actually will vote for you now. So look, at it's, it's who knows? Swings and roundabouts. But in any case, look, these issues are too important to be measured on whether people will vote for me or not. I was elected on a platform of arguing to defend Ireland's neutrality, to argue against the militarisation of Europe. And I was quite forthright in that. We've always been against that. The idea of Europe being a defence union is something that Irish people have repeatedly rejected. That was the mandate I stood for. I mean, if people have changed their views on that, well, then that's fine. But that's been my sort of all my political life. I've, I've done that, like, you know. I think, Claire, people are doubting the ability for, di- for you know, diplomacy to work when you have a situation like last week where Russia and Ukraine, the decision to allow grain exports to leave Ukraine and then within hours Russian missiles are hitting the port of Odessa. I think people are, you know, doubting Russia's trustworthiness to make a deal through diplomacy. Well, I suppose Russia would say the same, that they're doubting the West's ability to do a deal given that the Minsk agreement, which was signed off on by all sides and is the backdrop to this, wasn't implemented by all sides. And Russia has a a part to play in that. But I mean, the point is, is they did sit down, they did agree the deal and the bombing of Odessa wasn't linked to that, to preventing that situation, wasn't linked to the the grain situation. So look at the whole hallmark of diplomacy is that it isn't easy. It's about sitting down with people that you don't like and you don't agree with. I mean, what other answer is there? Continue the war until every Ukrainian is killed and every city is bombed to smithereens because that's the perspective. So horrible as it is and, you know, sitting down with people you don't agree with has to be the only way. And Russia has sat down before uh, and will sit down again. And absolutely, inevitably, the only question is when. Um, and I think we should be arguing for that to be sooner rather than later. And I think it's really a pity that Ireland didn't play a role as a neutral country um, on the Security Council and that in arguing for that, because we should remember that we're talking about, you know, sanctions being put on by the European Union and by America and so on. But the countries which have the majority of the world's populations haven't done that with Russia. And it's not because they agree with the war in the Ukraine. They certainly don't. But they've seen the impact of US imperialism and other wars in other countries and they understand the dynamics behind this. So I think the international community should be pushing and everybody forcing uh, a sit down on this. And in that scenario, I absolutely think Russia would comply, but you don't know until you try it. And uh, I mean, a couple of times, in fairness, Ukraine was at the table with Russia. Boris Johnson came and told Ukraine to basically leave. And similarly, US interference has stopped the Ukrainians from sitting down with Russia. But it is going to happen at some stage. Briefly, Claire, can we talk about your political connections with Mick Wallace? How did the two of you find common ground? And uh, am I wrong in saying you support one another, but would you go as far as to say you'd rely on one another at European Parliament level? 
Actually, look, I mean, I don't know. I mean, we've worked very closely in the Irish Parliament for um, eight and a half years. We were both elected as well. I was a member of the Socialist Party when I was elected to the Dáil the first time in 2011. Mick was elected as a, an independent, but we were both in the technical group and uh, later on in Independence for Change in the second mandate. So we've always worked quite well together. We have very similar views. I suppose the difference in our backgrounds makes a, a good combination in that I suppose I was involved in, in politics and electoral politics for a lot of my adult life as a shop steward and as a county councillor and so on. Mick was a very different businessman from a different background and I suppose that combination was pretty good. So yeah, we work very well as colleagues. We have a very strong team. Uh, the European Parliament gives good um, I suppose, support in terms of staffing. And we have a nice team in the two offices of staff who are totally committed to the work that we do. And, you know, the Irish media has covered very little of it because our mandate stretches not just on the foreign affairs stuff, but I've done a huge amount of work on rule of law, on refugees, on transport issues with, you know, aviation unions and so on. And none of that gets covered at home, which is really regrettable. Do you think, Claire, you're misunderstood on a level? It's not about it being misunderstood. I, th I think what it is, is it's the disconnect between um, the people of Europe and the European institutions. And that's really magnified in Ireland because I know, so I'll give you an example, like very early on when I got elected, I was speaking at the Libe Committee, which is kind of the Justice Committee, on issues about corruption and rule of law in Bulgaria, and partly in general about defence of journalists, but in part because of Irish people who bought property in, in Bulgaria and who'd been scammed. It's very lot of corruption in the country and so on, and it was on foot of that. And my intervention at the meeting got picked up on Bulgarian television because Bulgarian media was in the Parliament Committee room it spiraled from that and I became basically a household name in Bulgaria through a number of parliamentary interventions. The people were protesting against their government and I was the one that they invited out to address the 100 days of their protests. Not only that, like, but a year later when the people did get rid of the corrupt government and a new government came in, the Minister for the Interior invited us over to launch a report that we commissioned, just my office and our team, in the state body, a house of culture in Sofia, an honour that was given to no Bulgarian MEP, not to mind an MEP from the other side of Europe to come and present our report of joint work with them on rule of law. And there wasn't a single mention in the Irish media about any of that because the European Union isn't followed by the Irish media anywhere. And we've argued that there should be a sort of an Iraqist TV and it could be easily done whereby parliamentary proceedings, and I don't mean just our work or the Irish MEPs' work, but all of the MEPs, because when you're elected as an MEP, you're elected for the whole of Europe. So Irish people should be seeing what other MEPs are doing as well. And that could easily be done. So it's a deficit. It's not about being misunderstood or not. The media never gave us a, a good time. But I suppose the difference was in Ireland, we were seen on Oireachtas TV. We were around and about and people could see for themselves the other work we're doing. When we're in Europe, they can't see that. So, yeah, there's a bit of a deficit. There's a bit of a one-way street. All right. So that's why I'm glad you invited me on to talk today. <laughs> Claire. while you've been in European Parliament, the political polls here are suggesting a massive change in popularity of political parties and Sinn Féin is consistently topping the polls now. What do you make of this and do you think it's time for an election in Ireland? 
Oh, I do. I, I absolutely do. And uh, I mean, I think it's a real sign that people are fed up of the, the old guard of the success of governments dominated by Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, which have patently failed to deal with the key issues facing ordinary people in terms of housing, the health crisis, cost of living now and all the rest of it. So people want to change and they deserve it and the sooner the better. And I think Sinn Féin deserves its chance to be in there and show can it do something different because that's what people are calling for. And you've been on several different levels of politics, Claire. Do you prefer yourself personally being an MEP to a TD? Oh, that's a really hard question because actually, I suppose in the early years when we came out here first, I kind of felt I was missing the doll a fair bit. It was a platform that we used really well to deliver change. I think, you know, in terms of policing, we were there to see the abortion referendum carried through and so many other issues that I felt we were quite maybe in the early years here in Brussels, it wasn't so apparent, but to be honest with you, in a sort of a warped way, uh, since the war has broken out, I feel it's the absolute correct place for us to be because, in fact, a lot of what we're saying, which has just been arguing for peace and de-escalation and demilitarization, um, has resonated right across Europe. And there's so many people in every part of Europe who get in contact every day that even though we might take abuse for it at home and it might cost us and maybe it's not popular with voters, but actually it's a voice that needs to be heard. And I'm very glad that we have the honour of being there and the platform of being able to use that. And finally, Claire, you've we've spoken almost on a personal level there. Would you have any regrets or is there anything you've ever said or done throughout your career that you think you you would take back if you could? Well, I can't think of anything at the moment, like undoubtedly there probably is like, but uh, I, I'm not a person who tends to regret the things I've done. You're very modest. I think most people in life should, should should regret the things they don't do. So, I mean, undoubtedly there are things I've done that I've been disappointed with myself, but there's nothing that stands out that says, oh, that was an absolute disgrace and whatever. This idea of being an embarrassment and a disgrace. No, I don't feel we're an embarrassment and a disgrace at all. I think I have used the platform I was elected on to the best of my ability. We work hard. Our offices work hard. I think the fact that we have been picked up by the Ukrainian Secret Service shows that our voices are being listened to and have a reach well beyond um, Ireland. And actually, we get that vindicated every day. So, yeah, I mean, that's the job I was done to there. People don't want me to do it next time around. Well, isn't that the benefit of living in a democracy? And that's what we're trying to support. My thanks to Irish MEP Claire Daly for joining me today. I'm Denise Callanan, and today's episode was produced by Siobhan Maguire, researched by Tabitha Monaghan, recording by John Smith, and sound design by Gav Hennessy. Clips are from European Parliament Multimedia Platform, RTE News, Euronews, Galway International Arts Festival, and Independent.ie. If you enjoyed the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.